our lives started to change. We're here. We're hungry. We have lost everything. As father and son, we have walked together. We have fallen together. We have skinned our knees together. Nicaragua, Honduras, Tampa, Ybor City, but now this is survival. We're hungry. Welcome back, lads, to another Stoji Lads podcast. Today we're doing something special and a bit different from uh, what you guys have heard from us before, uh, because today we're going to go in-depth on a very famous cigar brand called Arturo Fuente, which I'm sure many of you have heard. Uh, we wanted to do this to uh, celebrate cigar history and just really go into depth into brand that we know so well today, but might not know the history of. And we thought that Arturo Forente was a great way to start this off. Uh, so we're very excited uh, to go through the history with you guys here and uh, all of the things that this wonderful company has gone through. Yeah, very well said, Lon. Very well said. Uh, so our story, uh, much like many cigar-related stories, begins in Cuba. In 1887, a boy named Arturo Fuente was born in the small town of Guinness, south of Havana. As a result of the Spanish-American War and all the turmoil it created in Cuba, many of the Fuente family, including some of his siblings, had left Cuba for Key West in 1904. Arturo would join them two years later in 1906 to seek a better life in the United States, like many Cubans before him have and countless of Cubans after him continue to do. After a few years in Key West, Arturo Fuente has finally grown up to become a young adult and he's now filled with aspiration and hope. It's now that in 1910, Arturo Fuente moves from Key West to West Tampa to chase his dreams. He had always had a dream of creating a cigar company and he did that just two years later in 1912. He'd now managed to scrape together enough resources to launch the A. Fuente Company cigar manufacturing company in West Tampa. The original factory used by the company was a classic three-story wooden building, which was one of the nearly 200 cigar-making facilities in the city of Tampa alone at the time, where hundreds of millions of cigars were made each year. So he's really come to a melting pot of, of cigar manufacturing here in, mm -hmm. in Florida. All of these manufacturers uh, in West Tampa would import tobacco from nearby Cuba for production into finished cigars. So they're, they're just importing tobacco and they're rolling the cigars there in, in uh, Florida. He also wanted to make cigars using the Cuban tobacco he was used to from his homeland. And uh, clearly here already, this is a very different time, long, long before the uh, U.S. embargo on Cuba. So using Cuban tobacco in the United States was actually very much commonplace, uh, as you've noticed that all the manufacturers there in Tampa was, was uh, using Cuban tobacco. Uh, so his company and their handmade Cuban cigars grew slowly but steadily and had done well enough for him to have employed an impressive 500 people in just 10 years. And, you know, as a, as a like 20 something year old guy starting at a company and growing it enough to 500 people in 10 years, I think that's that's pretty impressive. I'm not mm -hmm. sure how the uh, statistics at the time were, but uh, 
definitely he's he's done very well just as a young young immigrant kid uh, coming starting th- from nothing it's uh, it's pretty impressive but uh, you know sure it's not the Arturo Fuente we know today uh, but from a simple Cuban immigrant like I said to a very sustainable company he'd done very well for himself all this was about to change however as a massive strategy tragedy struck in uh, 1924 uh, in the same year that it had grown to become big enough to be now a legal corporation, Arturo Fuente would experience a low unlike any he'd ever felt before. So in late 1924, like I mentioned, Arturo was on one of his regular trips down to his native Cuba. Uh, he was there as always, just seeking out suitable cigar tobacco to import uh, for his company and that they would then of course roll into cigars in in Florida Uh, but it's at the time where he's actually away in Cuba that his simple wooden factory catches on fire and completely burns down to the ground and uh, you know at the time where the fire safety was pretty lax and buildings like A Fuente and Company's factory were predominantly made out of wood this was all too common Uh, and again I'm not sure really what the what the standards were like but I was just thinking you know we see we see factories today uh, where the rollers and you know the inspectors and the blenders and everyone they're just smoking cigars all the time and I'm sure this the case was the same back then when people consumed much more tobacco than they do today and I'm just thinking like it's they're all just wooden buildings it's it's almost a miracle that it didn't happen earlier uh, but the tragedy did did strike in 24 and yeah like I said his wooden factory burnt down and. Even though his company had been growing, it was far from prepared for a major issue like this. Young Arturo and his company were tragically underinsured, and this meant that he barely got anything back from the fire whatsoever from his insurance, and uh, the factory was also so badly burnt to the ground that he would have needed to build an entirely new one. There was nothing really to save. And of course, as a young entrepreneur businessman, he got nothing from insurance. He also lacked the funds himself to build a new factory. So you can ask yourself what happened. Um, and as this is a real story, there's no real room here for a fairy tale savior, sadly, for uh, young Arturo Fuente. So A Fuente Company and all its cigar production just simply ceased to exist. Uh, the company had no means to continue, so it simply stopped existing. Nothing, nothing else to move on with. On top of all this, Arturo Fuente actually went through a divorce with his wife at the time as well, Doña Hilda. So Arturo, so distraught and impoverished from all the events that had just happened in such a short amount of time as well, he uh, he moved all the way, uh, far away from the uh, Florida and the tropical climate that he was used to, uh, all the way up to Chicago uh, to escape and find work. And I'm sure there was a, a bit of the uh, economic part here where he wanted to get some... Uh, some uh, some jobs there in like a big growing industrial city but I'm, I'm sure there was also a mix of that you know trying to escape the the tragedy that it left behind in, in Florida and everything he's, he'd known so he moves all the way to Chicago other side of the country but when that didn't work out he uh, you know with the tail between his legs he uh, he had to return to, to Florida and uh, this time he elected not to go back to West Tampa and uh, again, I'm sure the, the fire tragedy still haunted him there. It's, it's tough to go back to the same place where you just, quote unquote, failed and had so much negativity happen to you. So he chose to go to another town very close by, though, still uh, called Ibor City. 
And uh, here, Arturo wasn't the only immigrant coming from Cuba, as we've highlighted, to the United States to establish a life for himself there. Uh, but here, a Spaniard named Vicente Martinez Ibor laid the groundwork for Arturo in a way. Isn't that right, lad? Yeah, exactly. Um, because I'm sure some of you might have heard of Ibor City, uh, since we all are very into cigars here. Uh, but if you haven't, just let me rewind the tape a bit uh, so I can really go into what happened in this area around Tampa before it became the prosperous cigar city that it was and still is today. Uh, so it's actually kind of a funny story here involving pure chance, friendship and uh, guava trees, funnily enough. Uh, so in the year 1884, uh, a Spanish emigre by the name Gavino Gutierrez uh, was employed by a New York City fruit packaging company. So nothing about cigars here. Um, and he had heard that there were many guava trees growing in just that Tampa Bay area. Uh, so with ambition, he set out to investigate this rumor, but faced many difficulties on the way there. One of them being that, you know, the railroad system only went as far south as Jacksonville. And uh, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with Florida, but that's about 200 miles or 300 kilometers short of Tampa Bay. Uh, so, yeah, there weren't any railroads, which meant that he had to travel by stagecoach through unpaved roads, really just nothing that was, yeah, very easy to get through. Uh, and the second problem was that the rumor that he set out for with this journey didn't turn out to be very true. Uh, since he didn't even find any guava trees there that could be extracted for commercial production. So remember, at this time, Tampa was an isolated village uh, with a population of less than 1,000 people. It's very strange to think that today, that, you know, Tampa being this big city now, at that time, yeah, less than 1,000 people lived there. Uh, but there were prospects of growing into a bigger economy there due to the expansion of the South Florida Railway that would uh, connect Tampa to the rest of the country. So Gutierrez, he left Tampa with slight sour taste of not finding the guava trees he set out for, uh, but still with hope that the area would have potential for development once the connecting railroad would be in place. But before returning to New York City, he, uh, he made a stop in Key West because one of his friends, Vicente Martinez Ibor, like you mentioned earlier, lad, he, uh, he was living at Key West in that time. Um, Ibor was not a guava merchant, but uh, instead he had built a prosperous cigar-making operation in uh, Havana, uh, but escaped from C Cuba in 1868 to avoid arrest or even death from the uh, Spanish colonial rule there because he was uh, involved both financially and uh, yeah, expressed his support to the Cuban revolutionaries there. Uh, that was fighting against wow. the Spanish colonial rule. Um, so what he did was he resumed his business in Key West after leaving Cuba, but wasn't completely happy with the rising costs there, the labor disputes, and obviously the transportation issues that arose there in the early 1980s. Um, so he was looking for other options, actually, to relocate. Uh, during the time that Gutierrez made this visit to him after his failed uh, yeah, what can you say? Financial trip to uh, Tampa. Um, so what Gutierrez did was that uh, he actually mentioned Tampa uh, as a possible replacement because he did see the potential there. So very quickly, um, Ubor 
made his way to Tampa together with another cigar manufacturer, Ignacio Haya. And what they realized was that Tampa was actually the perfect location to set up cigar production. It was near enough to Cuba to import tobacco by sea. It was a warm and humid climate that would keep tobacco leaves fresh and workable. And of course, the newly expanding railroad that would allow for transportation of the produced cigars to the entire United States. Mm. So Ibor brought several other cigar manufacturers with him. And by 1885, Ibor City was founded as an independent town and quickly became home to cigar manufacturing in the U.S., uh, which was later annexed by Tampa, which awarded Tampa the nickname Cigar City, which it still has today. Mm. Uh, so it is there in uh, Ibor City, this flourishing agricultural town created by an immigrant and filled with many more immigrants searching for a better life that Arturo settles again, our main character at this point. He still had the passion and dream of continuing a cigar company, obviously, since it went down in such a bad way for him. Uh, but we've now reached the Great Depression in the, 18, in the 1930s. And um, yeah, like I said, for a man who lost his whole company to that fire just a few years ago, uh, there wasn't much to build on during this poor economic area. So Arturo had to toil away as a general manager and save up resources for what turned out to be over two decades. So it is now that in 1946, well after the Great Depression, and now even with World War II behind him, that Arturo Fuente, much like much of the world at the time, was filled with hope and aspiration. So he had finally decided that it was the right time to re-enter the cigar industry all these years after that first fire. Still scarred by his past venture. However, he decided to be much more careful this time. Mm. Yeah, so uh, first I just want to touch on quickly the fact that we're... I, I realize for a listener, it might be a little bit uh, quick moving here in the beginning. Uh, we have jumped from, you know, the 1910s when he moved to the U.S. to the 20s when he started his business, just mentioning the 30s and then quickly to, the, to 1946 where we are now. Uh, but a lot of the reason behind this, I mean, Atur didn't like keep uh, his personal diary. Uh, I guess that wasn't that commonplace at the time. Uh, and in the 1930s, you know, the Great Depression, there's not that much going on in the world. And he's not really living his dream at this point. So, you know, he's not really documenting his life uh, during this time. I mean, he's just really working, trying to scrape together all the resources he can get to to actually make his dream come true. So it's actually decades. And that's what's kind of crazy about this, that it's been over two decades now since the fire, uh, where we reached this 1946 time uh, after, like Ruben said, the Great Depression and World War II. And again, like you mentioned, uh, he wanted to be much more careful this time. Uh, and this immediately shows itself because instead of going big and investing in a real factory like he did the first time, the new Arturo Fuente cigar factory, as it was now called, was just his back, back porch, actually, of his own house in Ybor City. And uh, this was just a 10 by 16 foot porch. Uh, and it only had a few simple rolling stations making cigars there in the outdoor area. Again, their cigars would use tobacco brought from his native Cuba. So even though we're jumping ahead a lot in the in the time, we're still far away from the from the embargo. We're still very much in the era where clear Havanas, that they're called at the time, are are the popular cigar. Cuban tobacco imported to the United States is still very much the the norm. So Arturo himself, along with his wife Cristina. And now he's found, found a new wife, uh, rolled cigars all day long, and they actually were able to hire a few more workers. 
Uh, but this work wasn't hard enough, though. Uh, as the cigar rolling continued far into the night, way after these hired rollers would go home, Arturo's wife, again Cristina, uh, was very instrumental uh, into the production of this time, and she would make huge Cuban pots of food, Cuban pots of, of uh, that uh, famous Cuban coffee, and uh, she would serve it to all the various friends and family members. And they would come over uh, late at night after their own full-time jobs ended just to help uh, Arturo and his wife roll a few cigars in the evening. And this was kind of a loud and family gathering style event that would happen every night. Pretty much people would come over, have some food, roll cigars, and everyone was just helping each other out. It was all very much a family core of, of a business. And Arturo himself here, I mean, he'd finally gotten his opportunity, right? He's, he's finally back on the horse. He can finally have his own company again. So he was really crazed in this time. He, he's described as he would smoke around 25 cigars a day, which I find incredible. That's, I mean, I, I don't even know how you get through that many a day. But yeah, he would often fall asleep with one in his mouth. He would smoke until he fall, fell asleep, basically. And uh, the classic thing that would happen then is that that cigar would fall out of his mouth, of course, and <laughs> then his wife would have to go pick that up and put it on his bedside table. And why she didn't throw it away? Well, that's because every morning when he woke up the next day, he'd uh, he'd put that same cigar in his mouth and the new day would begin. And he'd be ready to go. And again, this just kind of brings me back to the whole fire hazard thing, right? Because I don't understand how you after yeah. have after one of your or your factory has burnt down, you just smoke cigars, lit cigars are just rolling out of your mouth on the floor every night that's kind of crazy but yeah you're like his dream had been uh, vanished from that fire yeah. as well and it's been so many years after and then yeah and then without much uh yeah really playing with uh, with fate here um mm. but at this time uh when we're here into the 40s late 40s a new generation of fuentes had entered the picture when the back porch production began uh, carlos fuente was 11 years old already so although it wasn't his moniker at the time i just want to quickly mention that we'll refer to him as carlos fuente senior from now on to avoid confusion uh, very quick sidebar the fuentes love naming their kids after themselves so there's a lot of carlos fuentes there are several arturo fuentes so uh, this carlos arturo fuentes son will be carlos senior from now on uh, but he also had a brother and along with his brother arturo jr they would both much like the rest of the family, help out the business all the time. As young kids, obviously, they do more chore-like tasks, like sweeping the floor and helping out with menial stuff like that. But they'd soon be taught the mechanics as well of how to roll a cigar. And uh, soon they'd be making cigars themselves and had to make at least 50 each day. That's what they call the homework. 50 each day after coming home from school uh, as youngsters. And clearly, you know, this is a very, very uh, different time. Uh, but going back now, after touching on Carlos Sr. And, and Arturo Jr., how is how is life for uh, our main character still in this story, Arturo Fuente himself, Lon? Yes, yeah, so to continue with Arturo, he obviously had to continue to work hard, even through his age now. You know, we've swept through so many decades, he's actually racking up some ages on his neck. And uh, as he entered his 60s now, he was still working relentlessly with the cigars, and uh, Carlos Sr. increasingly pitched into help um, because, you know, he, he was watching his father uh, do this work when he was growing up. And, um, yeah, he, he didn't want to see his aging father slave away, really, as, as the way he was doing. Uh, 
And obviously the Fuentes were hard workers from the get-go, and uh, Carlos Sr. definitely showed this ambition and work ethic, um, yeah, as he was taught from, uh, from his father Arturo himself. Uh, so both the fighting spirit and the work ethic continued all throughout the 1950s, uh, as this second iteration of the Arturo Fuente Cigar Company was much, much smaller, it did not take off in the same way. Um, remember, they were rolling these cigars in their mm-hmm. own home, really. So it was, yeah, there was no really upscaled business for this. Mm-hmm. Um, the growth was quite stagnant due to this. Uh, so Carlos Sr. had to keep working other jobs on the side, you know, to support his family and the family business at that. Uh, so besides... Uh, rolling cigars and helping his father he worked part-time in a bakery uh, while his wife worked part-time for another cigar factory actually on the side Uh, so the company didn't expand much and stayed pretty much local uh, only selling cigars to people in the Tampa and Ybor City region Uh, also only by cash really Mm -hmm. Um, so Arturo Fuente was growing old now and in the late 1850s 1950s uh, we reach a crucial moment in the company's history as has been highlighted Arturo Fuente the company has been very much a family business having every aspect of the family involved so Arturo Fuente wanted this to continue and his goal was to hand this company over to the next generation his intention as was often customary uh, was originally to hand that generation uh, forward to his firstborn son, Arturo Jr. But as you might have noticed, we haven't at all really brought him up and barely touched on him because uh, we're more focused on Carlos Sr. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let us highlight his life and relationships a little more so we can understand why. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, Carlos Sr. was really, as, as has become quite clear, he's the one who has the passion for the business he's the one that has the passion for the cigars arturo jr was a little more lax with this stuff he was a little bit uh, more aloof um there's actually a funny story that carlos senior told uh, just to go off on a tiny tangent where uh, yeah. as we mentioned they, they had to come home and roll cigars 50 each for homework uh, and the goal was for them to roll 50 each uh, but arturo jr he wasn't a huge fan of this he didn't love rolling he wanted to go and play or you know hang out with friends or whatever so he wanted uh, to kind of cheat and work together with carlos senior and kind of uh yeah roll roll the cigars together in some way i'm not sure exactly how the mechanics would have worked but uh, carlos senior tells the story in the way that arturo wanted to kind of cheat his way out of it and carlos didn't want to uh, he didn't want to rush the time of hands and this is a, a theme that we'll definitely see with the arturo yeah. fuente company in the future but basically arturo is much more distant uh, and he's not as passionate about this uh, but carlos senior had been working to support the family since he was eight um, like many people had to do at this time, this is, you know, 70 plus years ago, 80 plus years ago. Um, he'd f- sold fruits in the streets. He did classic street jobs, you know, like shoe shining, uh, like kids used to do back in those days. So rolling at cigars at home for him, you know, that was certainly an upgrade in his mind. Uh, and Carlos Sr. even continued to do odd jobs on the side, like we mentioned, to support the company it, well into his teenage years. He worked at pharmacies late into the night. He delivered newspapers. Um, but this fighting spirit that we've sort of started touching on a little bit here, it showed in other ways as well. And this is where 
another sort of tragedy in the in the family happens. He Carlos Senior actually contracts polio at the age of twelve. Again, we just kind of see here how long ago this is because this is at the time where FDR had polio, right? And a lot of people are getting paralyzed, and mm-hmm. this is kind of a normal disease. And he couldn't walk normally for years. But he was inspired by his father to keep fighting. Uh, he, he had to be quarantined for months uh, right after he contracted the the uh, the disease. And his father, Arturo Fuente, would come to the hospital every day. Uh, they couldn't see each other. They just had to see each other through the window. And his father would just say, don't give up, don't give up. Uh, and just yeah, mm-hmm. kept kept pushing him basically to to keep going. And that's, I guess, not really how diseases work. But I, either by miracle or this fighting spirit, that's the way the Fuentes uh, kind of uh, you know push the the narrative here is that he was able to regain his ability to walk. And that's actually not very common. Most people were paralyzed and uh, faced tougher fates than uh, Carlos Senior. So he was able to regain his ability to walk. Um, and uh, that that chapter was sort of af- behind him and he, he was able to move on from there uh, a little bit later in his life uh, another you know tidbit here in his in his life uh, he saw a woman waiting for a red light kind of a funny story and he became so obsessed with her and her beauty immediately and uh, describes it as he fell in love at first sight uh, then he saw her again at a baseball game and again was so perplexed with her beauty that he couldn't focus on the game at all didn't keep track of the score all that stuff uh, and again, this sort of fighting spirit, he just knew he, he, this was the woman for him. So when he finally got the opportunity to talk to her, uh, this was in the hallways of his high school. Uh, there he was able to, you know, ask her out on a date, all this stuff. And their relationship finally blossomed. And this woman, of course, was Ana Lopez, who ended up becoming Carlos Sr.'s wife. They married at 18. Uh, and this is another woman, much like we touched on Cristina Arturo Fuentes' wife a little bit, helping out. Ana Lopez turns out to be very instrumental as well, uh, both to the family, both to Carlos Sr. himself, but as the to the company as a whole. Ruben mentioned slightly that she also worked on on the side at, at a at a very prestigious Cuesta Ray factory. Actually, that's a brand that still is available today. Uh, so she rolled cigars there to support the business, and obviously carried that over. Um, and uh, yeah, Carlos Sr. and his wife's complete devotion to helping the family and the company helped tip the scales when we return here in 1958 to Arturo Fuentes' big decision. Um, Arturo, at this point, was 68 years old, which doesn't add up mathematically. I realize the Fuentes are actually pretty bad at keeping the, the numbers straight because <laughs> if he's 68 at this point, it should be he should have been born in 1890, but he, they claim he's born in 1887. In one other interview, Carlos Sr. says Arturo was 65 to 68 at this point, so we're not really sure. Yeah. Let's just say 68 because that's what they wrote down. But at 68, however, yeah, he could finally retire. He could finally collect Social Security. Um, but basically, the reason he had to pass it down at this age is in the States at the time, if you want to collect Social Security, you couldn't have a job and an active income. So basically, he had to pass the company down. And like we said, instead of passing the company down to his firstborn, Arturo Jr., the son that was named after him, uh, he passed it down to Carlos Sr. Arturo Jr. actually had a well-paying job in the peanut industry at the time, so he was not interested whatsoever. Uh, because Carlos Sr. showed much more passion and commitment, like we said, he was the one who got the company. Uh, Arturo saw that unquenchable thirst to grow the company within Carlos Sr., and he recognized that within himself as well, and he really saw that this was this was the the person to, to keep the torch going, you know, carry the torch Um and Carlos Sr.'s responsibilities had actually increased so much already that he was already seen as 
the head of the company really by a lot of the uh, you know the the family and the employees so it wasn't it wasn't that radical of a decision in the end so in 1958 carlos senior purchased the company quote unquote for one dollar they had to do it this way to make it a legal transfer again so arturo uh, Fuente could could get his uh, social security uh, and then he uh, yeah so thereby he gained the assets of the company and uh, the company was worth about a thousand one hundred dollars uh, so well over a hundred a thousand dollars and zero debt so there was a lot of potential for the company to grow but obviously it's not huge at the time and this it's been 12 years already since they launched the company so again like Ruben said they're not really expanding too much it's still being made in the house for 12 years and you know the assets aren't huge there's no debt because they just did the cash sales but mm-hmm. at the time of the transaction uh, he did leave his father some prom uh, a promising sentence where he promised his father that as long as you live when i make a dollar you will also make a dollar uh, so that's what he kind of wanted to to leave his father with um but yeah lad, keep keep it going keep it going here with carlos because yeah we're far absolutely. from done <laughs> <laughs> we're far from done because the first baton passing has been made now mm-hmm. uh, to carlos senior who was although we call him carlos senior at this point he is very much a young man mm-hmm. um uh, but he never went to college since he had to work part-time uh, at the bakery and uh, help with the company at home uh so he he didn't go to college but he never actually even graduated from high school uh but there was this this firing ambition in him uh, which Mm -hmm. guided him and he decided to take some risks to expand the company not like his uh, father arturo who uh, wanted to take things very much uh, you know on a smaller scale and uh, take a secure path um Carlos wanted to bring some risk into this. Uh, so what he did was he began by opening a lot more accounts in Florida uh, to grow the company's reach and sales, um, which meant that he also decided to change the method of sales. So like I mentioned, instead of a classic cash for cigars type of sales strategy, uh, like his father had had, he decided to sell cigars on credit. Uh, so this was completely new at the time and seen as a massive risk really uh, especially considering Carlos senior had zero academic background and no sales experience whatsoever uh, so it also different yeah like I said from his father's philosophy philosophy who wanted to sell the cigars for cash uh, obviously Arturo was much more old-fashioned in that sense and uh, he only really believed in cash in hand type payments um, obviously from his background where it was much very much insecurity and he wanted some security for his family Uh, but still carlos senior he prevailed and all his risks paid off in a major way the next 10 years were monumental for the company as they were able to set up distributors in miami and even in manhattan yeah so what carlos senior's focus really was was on markets with a large hispanic community as they had been the ones who had traditionally been the big cigar consumers in the the United States. And although they did experience growth, it was not as much as Carl Sr. had hoped for. Uh, They were able to employ a few more workers, but the factory was still in Arturo Fuentes' house, remember? And Carl Sr. still lived there with his wife. Uh, Times were simple at this time, so you could actually run a cigar business from, uh, from your house that worked. But there obviously was some cap to this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the new workers that they brought in obviously needed room in the house. And now the back porch wasn't the only place where they'd actually roll the cigars. 
They vacated all the rooms inside the house now and put the furniture actually outside to get the necessary space needed. Uh, so finally, they felt this level of production was not sustainable in the house uh, since they were getting more and more clients. And uh, in the early 1960s, Carlos Sr. purchased a two-floor building in Ybor City on the corner of 17th and 18th Avenue. So this is actually a very big moment mm -hmm. in uh, in their history because this is the first time they've uh, really moved out of the, the house. And... Uh, yeah, in this new starting era mm -hmm. and uh, actually started to upscale. Um, yeah, so the first floor in this new building that they purchased was uh, was used as the main factory with uh, Arturo Fuente and his wife, Cristina, living on the second floor. And uh, Carlos Sr., he spent so much time at this factory. He worked at the He worked there all day and all night, often past midnight, to try to keep up with, well, all the things that he needed to, to do. Uh, because not only did he want to oversee the production, but he he kept the books by himself because he couldn't afford to pay anyone else to do so at the time. And he often even slept in the factory, which obviously jaded his family relationship a bit. I mean, his wife Anna once spent three weeks without being able to see her husband uh, whatsoever and actually threatened to leave him if he wouldn't come home. Uh, but in uh, Carlos Sr.'s mind, leaving the factory wasn't any option, really, since he was so focused on, on yeah, well, getting the company running and uh, being the meticulous man that he was. Mm -hmm. He pleaded for his wife to move into the factory alongside him, uh, which she finally accept accepted. Um, so, yep, the struggles resulted in some success as the production grew and the staff soon had doubled to 100 employees. So you can say absolutely that that time that he put in there was worth it. Mm. But, um, yeah, he wanted more, however, much more. He was he had this vision, really. Um, but he felt that cigar smokers in this era were too brand loyal. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, it was the next big thing was very difficult to establish since people were smoking the cigars that they were used to getting. And, um, yeah, something needed to change. This was the scene of turmoil in the capital, Havana, as the climax of revolution was reached. Anyone suspected of sympathy for the Batista regime came in for a rough time. Yeah, and change things, uh, things certainly did, because uh, what happened in 1959, uh, well... Maybe people don't react to the date uh, right away, but it's actually one of the biggest events uh, in that decade worldwide, uh, but probably one of the biggest events in the cigars history. Uh, the Cuban Revolution, of course, happened in 1959. Uh, we're not going to dive too deep in the Cuban Revolution itself uh, here, uh, as most listeners probably already know a bit about it, but it did mean change in massive ways. Uh, everything was, you know, made property of the the government, uh, you know, completely turned into communist nation, all that stuff. Um, obviously, the change meant bad things to many people in Cuba. Uh, a lot of people had to flee in Cuba. They had to flee the communist regime. But in a sort of twisted way uh, for the Fuente family, the revolution actually turned out to be exactly what the company needed. Like Ruben said, uh, it just there was so much uh, stagnation in the market. People were just smoking what they were used to at the time. They needed something to change majorly, and it couldn't come at a better time. So it was first, though, in 1962 that the effects of the Cuban Revolution really would run their course. 
uh, because at this time it's it's been three years and not much has really happened but as you guys obviously know the u.s placed their trade embargo signed by john f kennedy famously and all u.s and cuban trade was cut and like we've mentioned several times they've been making cigars with cuban tobacco pretty much every company in the u.s has been doing this so carlos senior was actually lucky lucky enough to be in cuba right at the time that those events would take place he was still traveling regularly to cuba to buy tobacco to to you know seek out tobacco for the company and he happened to be there right at the time around when they would sign the embargo and he actually heard rumors that it was going to happen here he actually did something he hadn't done a lot before he made an executive decision so to speak so he didn't consult Arturo obviously he couldn't just text him on his phone at this time but he decided you know he needed to act quickly so he rushed around the island and bought as many bales of tobacco that he possibly could find and they were priced at about 250 US dollars per bale. So he just went around and as much money as he had, as much tobacco as he could find, he was like, we need to, yeah, basically make sure that we have as much tobacco as we can get if the rumors are true. So he was actually able to procure a three-year supply right before the embargo was signed, which, you know, that's a, that's a godsend. That's an incredible, incredible stroke of luck or genius, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this was another crucial moment in the company's history. As the Arturo Fuente cigar factory, factory was able to avoid the fate of many other cigar factories. I mean, at the time, like I mentioned, pretty much every producer in the U.S. was using Cuban tobacco. And, you know, overnight, that was not an option anymore. And many factories didn't, you know, they were smaller scale. They didn't have, enough, you know, stocks of tobacco themselves. They would order tobacco as they needed it, roll the cigars, sell the cigars and order tobacco on the go. Uh, so as a lot of factories didn't have enough stock, they were forced to shut down immediately. I mean, what else can you do? Luckily enough, while the entire cigar industry was scrambling to find alternative tobacco producing nations, Arturo Fuente was able to continue through the three year supply they had. And that really bought them some time. They didn't need to stress. They had three years. They knew that. And you know that really gave them room to breathe. They were actually even offered up to 10 times the price per bale that Carlos Sr. had originally paid. So, you know, he was offered thousands of dollars per bale, but he actually refused. He realized, sure, they could get some cash in hand quickly, but for the security of the company, uh, they really needed uh, they really needed to keep the, the, the tobacco. So, yeah, let's, let's move on here, lad. Uh, what else are the effects? I mean, obviously, they, they do have their tobacco, but there's some more effects of the, uh, the Cuban Revolution here. Yes, of course. Uh, well, yeah, this takes us back to the absolute paradigm shift that the Cuban Revolution really was. Uh, because, as mentioned, other cigar-producing terroirs needed to be found other than Cuba, since that wasn't an option anymore. So Carlos Sr. felt that this really removed that brand loyalty that we talked about earlier, that everyone was just buying the same thing and um, which was really keeping his company's growth so stagnant. So everything, everyone was suddenly on a level playing field as all the established cigars and their flavors were gone from the market. So Arturo and Carlos Fuente began experimenting with a vast variety of tobacco from several different countries. Uh, they bought tobacco from countries such as Puerto Rico and Colombia and blended meticulously to try to replicate a similar type of smoking experience as the Havana cigars they had been making for decades. Uh, so they finally reached their goal 
and uh, released the Florida the Orlando cigar line. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny actually looking back at the package, the packaging of this uh, Florida Orlando, because it's so incredibly clear how the deep roots of Cuban tobacco were in the United States at the time. Um, yeah, we obviously we can't show a picture here, but um, after over a hundred years of smoking Cuban cigars, it must have been such a shock to have to go something completely different. Because on that box, it actually reads, made under direct Cuban supervision using vintage Havana seeds. So it doesn't state now that there is that it's a non-Cuban cigar, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nothing regarding the actual countries of the origin uh, appeared as traditional. Just the box appeared as traditionally Cuban mm-hmm. as possible. But funnily enough, Fuente never actually advertised the fact that their cigars stopped containing Cuban tobacco. They just continued using Cuban tobacco for the years after the embargo due to his extremely smart move of Mm -hmm. stockpiling that which they had done. Uh, But when they ran out, they never actually said so. Mm -hmm. So Carlos Sr. didn't want to make the mistake that other factories had made, uh, which had sent them to an early grave, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is kind of a funny, uh, kind of funny fact just to say it quickly because I mean, apparently a lot of other companies were straightforward into saying that they, that they stopped using Cuban tobacco, but mm-hmm. that 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 killed them. Like successful companies were able to get good quality Cuban tobacco, but at the same time, people were like, "Well, I can still get my Cuban cigars from Fuente," and I mean, I'm sure other companies still have yeah. tobacco, so Fuente would just keep going and they say no we still have cuban tobacco and they just never said it uh, but this that's also another interesting thought because they had to have stopped at some point right as we as we heard i wonder how much how big of a difference there was i mean they, they really must have done well to replicate the the flavor because i mean all of a sudden the cigars just stopped yeah. having cuban tobacco uh, so that's pretty pretty exactly it should be it should be said though that uh well fuente he didn't he didn't if he was asked he uh, mm-hmm. he would say that it's not Cuban, but he didn't advertise it. Yeah, I mean, that's so, very true. Like it was it was also a uh, yeah. If no one asks, he didn't say it really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're we're actually yeah we're in 1965 now, so we're exactly at three years after the embargo. They're out of Cuban tobacco now. Cuba's behind us, uh, and the company has finally grown enough from all those savvy decisions made by Carlos Senior that. They were able to purchase the Charles the Great building in uh, Ybor City on 22nd Street. And that might not uh, scream uh, fa- <laughs> like a famous building to you guys listening, but this is this is a very big deal. Very, very big deal. Uh, even a bigger deal than their first factory that they were able to buy. Uh, because this, this tall and grand brick building for the first time, so <laughs> less of a fire hazard. <laughs> Uh, was built in 1895, and this was a long shot away from, as I mentioned, the much more brittle and small wood buildings that the company had relied on for all the decades in the past. This was a real point of, pra- pra- point of pride for the family. Uh, Carlos Sr. had actually been dreaming of making cigars in this building in the years prior when uh, he was working around the clock in their two-story corner building in the same city. He even actually used to tell his father that one day they would own that building, and this is a dream he could finally realize. That's a you know monumental part uh, that he could finally make cigars there. That was probably felt like such a long shot years before. And now you know, just in a few years, they've gone from the house to a small factory to a big one. So it really shows how much impact Carlos Senior's made in just a few years since taking over the mm-hmm. company. It's quite quite astounding. 
again, the company would continue to grow. We're now into the 1970s. Uh, not a lot has been happening. I mean, the, again, you have to realize that they're just starting out blending non-Cuban cigars, so they're really trying to establish themselves. There's probably kind of a lot of chaos on the market. Uh, and now we're finally into the 1970s. Uh, and things have been sounding like they've been going very well. Uh, there's been a lot of fortune, but this is really a tough decade for the family, a very tough decade. In uh, 1973, Arturo Fuente, the namesake, the guy that created everything, he sadly passed away, though at the age of 85, so he had a long and prosperous life. Uh, but of course, of course, this devastated the family. Uh, and beyond that, beyond the magnificent life of Arturo Fuente that finally came to an end, uh, the business was also starting to become, come to a tough place. Uh, the, the U.S. had been such a flourishing country for manufacturing in general. Just all types of manufacturing was very common in the States. Uh, and manual labor was, you know, often things were made in the U.S. But really in the 70s, things began to shift a lot. Inflation rise, uh, was ri rising a lot. Uh, I remember hearing something about... Uh, rates it was hard to get loans and all that kind of stuff i mean it was just much tougher to to make make anything in the states anymore uh, but really it was the rising labor costs that brought the biggest change uh, for the cigar business it was really tough to continue hand making cigars i mean it's kind of crazy thinking about that the the, the labor costs we have now in the states the fact that they you know they had such a big business in the states until the 70s but Finally, it's it's become very tough to make the make the cigars there uh, without the prices completely skyrocketing, and that's a death sentence for any company. Um, so, a lot of companies actually turned to machine making, and this is really the era where even in Cuba uh, they were machine making stuff. Uh, this is the era where that really took off, and machine making made cigars were becoming a lot more popular. Uh, big part due to the ri rising labor costs, um, and this of course included Arturo Fuente who made machine rolled cigars under the name uh, Moya and Trinidad. So they had two brand names uh, of their uh, machine made cigars. So they made new brands for that. Uh, and they still kept their classic Arturo Fuente brand itself completely handmade. And that's really kind of a, a point uh, to touch on that. Carlos Sr., he always wanted to make handmade cigars. He was very much a traditionalist in that sense. He he felt that the classic cigars that he grew up with, that was the right way to do it. Of course, he would make machine-made cigars to survive because if he wouldn't have pivoted in that way, I mean, they would have been gone. Uh, but he, he still wanted to remain with the handmade stuff. Uh, and they still sold some of the handmade cigars, of course. But at this point already, the vast majority of their sales actually came from the machine-made counterparts. So they've taken off that much. Uh, and to balance this, Carlos Sr. had to look outside of Ybor City for rollers to try to keep the handmade stuff going. So he tried making cigars by hand with rollers in Mexico. That failed. He moved to Puerto Rico. Not much success there either. So he's not really he's not really getting uh, far at all. And this is kind of a tough, tough situation here. He doesn't really know what to do. So it wasn't really until a trip to Nicaragua. Again, he's scrambling around. He's trying to see where can I go? What can I do? Where can we where can we find uh a viable spot uh, and this was made possible by Angel Oliva Jr. Oliva of course is probably a name that a lot of people in the <laughs> cigar industry recognize. Uh, he he came to Nicaragua, he sampled some cigars at a factory and he was so impressed that he bought the entire stock, he invested in the factory and he's like we got our spot and uh, Nicaragua it is. Uh, so finally some success. Uh, they started making cigars in Nicaragua, obviously 
prices to roll cigars there are much lower than the states so they can do it there and the business started taking off immensely uh, with these nicaraguan hand-rolled cigars they it went really quickly and they employed 300 people there in that factory which is huge uh, and in their heyday they produced up to uh, 18,000 cigars each and every day there uh, mm-hmm. But as we know with the Fuentes, success isn't sustained for that long without some uh, some troubles, right, lad? Nine months after losing a brief civil war that cost thousands of lives, the Sandinist guerrillas have launched what they call their final offensive. The Sandinista National Liberation Front, or FSLN, is named after the 1920s nationalist leader Augusto Sandino. At the beginning of June, they began their fight on three major fronts, along the Atlantic coast, in the north around Leon, and on the southern border with Costa Rica. Yes, unfortunately, that has been uh, been the story of the Fuentes, that they've, when they've finally gone going again, something has torn them down. And at this time, um, in the late 70s in Nicaragua, it was very much not a stable time because uh, there was a dicta- dictatorship run by the Somoza family that had governed Nicaragua since 1936. And things were finally reaching the tipping point here. So without going into too much detail, the Somoza family, like most author- authoritarian dictatorships, were not kind people. They controlled a military group called the National Guard, who tortured and murdered anyone in their way. So by the end of the 70s, Nicaragua had turned into a full-on civil war, with the Somosas on one side and the Sandinista National Liberty Front on the other. The latter group started to turn the tide and take control. Um, So, yeah, as we said, history has a way of repeating itself. And due to the revolution, and in a very twisted and dark turn of events, the Fuente factory in Nicaragua actually burnt down Mm. Again, just as Arturo Fuentes' original factory had done over half a century before. Mm. So, Carlos Sr., now in the running spot, he's running this company, was to face the similar struggles as his father had just just done the same way, Mm -hmm. uh, but without his guidance by his side now. Um, He did, however, have that fighting spirit that was instilled in him and of course, refuse to give up. And this is a theme that we really uh, keep getting back to, is this fighting Fuente spirit. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. They uh, they quickly bounced back, and uh, they moved to Honduras. Uh, they scrambled. I mean, uh, the, the story is actually crazy. Carlos Sr. had to flee Nicaragua uh, in the last minute he got out, and uh, they had to bounce back. Uh, and uh, they set up a factory in Honduras and they started production immediately and it went well. Uh, but within a year, they got a phone call a lot. And uh, do you want to guess what happened <laughs> to the factory in Honduras? <laughs> I wouldn't dare. Yeah, well, uh, we we have the fighting spirit. That's a that's a theme. We have the, the passion for cigars. That's a theme. And the fires are a very central theme here because would you believe it? There's an accidental fire in Honduras and everything burns down again. So two factories within a year has have burned down. So now they've been, in a couple of years, they've gone to Nicaragua, it's burned down. They've gone to Honduras, and it's burned down. And I mean, at this point, they're devastated. They have basically nothing. Um, so a lot, they, they, I mean, they have three viable options here, really. Uh, what, what can they do here? I mean, what can they do here, Lad? Yeah, 
so the three options they had were to either they just sell their entire business and count their losses of course not an option for families such as the fuentes the section second option being to leave the entire business of handmade cigars behind and only focus on the machine rolling that they had in the the u.s to try to bounce back mm-hmm. uh, or the third option to keep fighting for what they believe to be the best type of cigars and move the handmade production to a different country and i guess knowing the fuentes at this point you mm-hmm. can understand which option they went for they ov- obviously went for the third option but the most difficult option uh, but obviously was the only option available uh, or viable for a fighter like Carlos Sr. and moved to the Dominican Republic. So Carlos Sr. realized he couldn't do this all alone. And luckily enough, he wasn't alone, right? No, well, he actually had a son. So this is a perfect time to introduce little Carlito Fuente. Uh, and we need to jump back in time a little bit again. <laughs> so we're hopping back <laughs> and forth, but we're finally introducing the third generation of Fuentes here. Um, so in 1954, the third tobacco generation in the Fuente family is born as Carlos Sr.'s wife gives birth to a son called Carlos Jr. Uh, again, now, now you see the confusion of why we decided to name Carlos Sr. Carlos Sr. because he's another Carlos. But this Carlos is actually most known as Carlito. So we're going to call him that uh, throughout the, next, the rest of the story. So you have Arturo Fuente who began the company. Then you have Carlos Sr. who t- take over. And then now you have his son, Carlito Fuente. So the story goes that young Carlito had tobacco in his blood from day one, quite literally. He once got so sick as a child that his mother was forced to take him to the doctor. The doctor found out that he had so much nicotine in his system from running around the factory that he'd gone sick, nicotine poisoning. This, of course, was during the time where they were still making the cigars in his house. So there's, you know, you can't really get away from the tobacco. Uh, But he was running around the house and it's all just filled with cigars. Uh, Maybe not the most healthy start to life, but uh, tobacco was in his blood nonetheless. Uh, In this very factory, quote unquote, so to say, uh, three generations were now living together as his parents were still young and financially unable to live anywhere else. So we're just touching base with the prior part of the story here. Uh, Carlito smoked his first ever cigar already at the age of six, actually. Uh, The curiosity to, in some way, understand the family business and get his first taste of it was just a little bit too much for little Carlito to resist. He he thinks back to the moments he would spend on the porch with the entire family and the wonderful neighbors of the community that would come by the house and smoke a cigar, share a cigar with his grandfather Arturo. And it's not really that difficult to understand why family matters so much to Carlito today and why he holds traditions and family history so alive. So, back to the move to the DR, lad. Yes, and uh, yeah, they moved to the Dominican Republic. Uh, in January of 1980, uh, Carlos Sr. met with the Oliva family once again to discuss a venture to the Dominican Republic. And uh, this may sound like a no-brainer today, right? Uh, I mean, Santiago, the second largest city in the Dominican Republic, is one of the cigar capitals of the world. Huge brands like Davidoff have their factories there. And, uh, well, the region creates an immense amount of cigars today. Forty years ago, though, this was not really the case at all. Well, starting off, Carlos Sr. considered himself broke at the time. And to make this move even remotely possible in the first place, he had to mortgage off his house the family had to put in all the cash they had and leave the safety and comfort of their life in the U.S. for a completely new place. Um, 
he even asked like he, i said he had to mortgage his house off and he even took help from carlito and asked him how much money he had and that was mm-hmm. a couple of thousands of dollars and he said well yeah that's going to be enough we're going to make this move mm. and um carlito he remembers the dominican republic at this time as well a place where <laughs> the, to put it in what he said the bread was like rocks and the toilet paper was like sandpaper <laughs> So it lacked all the modern amenities. And uh, when the family traveled there, they needed to bring basic goods like diapers and sugar. So they didn't really have their own phone either. But instead, the whole neighborhood had to share one single phone to use collectively. So you can really put your mind to what kind of place they had moved to from from the U.S. coming now to the Dominican Republic to continue their dream. Uh, The Fuentes who had obviously gone all in on the Dominican Republic at this point, weren't only inconvenienced by the lack of comfort. They actually had genuine fears that the lack of stability in the country would lead to the same fate as in Nicaragua. Um, And at one point, even, they thought a revolution was entirely possible, which must have put a a lot of fear into Mm -hmm. them since they had just put everything at risk to move to the Dominican Republic, leaving safe home uh, to come here. Um, but luckily, stability returned enough so that the Fuentes could establish themselves fully in the country and truly blossom. Again, though, the Fuentes continued to work in the Dominican Republic as much as they'd done originally in Newport City. Uh, as you probably have noticed from now, these aren't, uh, these aren't lazy people that, uh, that give up easy. So uh, Calito Fuente himself recalls the struggle and hard work they all had to put in. They were working up to 18 hours a day nonstop just to grow the company back to where it was. I mean, you really have to put yourself in, the, in their shoes, not only you know from the stuff that Ruben talked about, how tough it was in, in the primitive version of the DR at the time, but they just had two factories burned down and still they have this you know ability to just continue as if nothing had happened and you know there was no other option. Carlos Sr. put every penny of profit that they got back into the company and invested everything in tobacco. Here he, he kind of came to the conclusion at this point that aged tobacco was worth its weight in gold, obviously figuratively speaking and not, not, not exactly literally. Um, but he, invented, he invested much more, uh, more and more in aged tobacco, and he really aimed to keep a good stock. And he noticed much better results came from the more aged tobacco he used. Customers liked it more, sales increased, ratings increased, all that stuff. This practice obviously remains today, and anyone who's seen the immense vaults of aged and aging tobacco that the Fuentes have access to today will definitely recognize this. It's not something that they take lightly. The Fuentes, they began buying good tobacco regardless of the situation at the time, regardless of the space they had for it or not. So even if they didn't have any space, they had to buy it. Like Carlos Senior said, good tobacco is good tobacco, and you'll always need it. And I'm sure this really originally stems from the time where Carlos Sr. himself bought all those bales of tobacco in Cuba, even though they didn't need it, need it at the time, and it didn't seem completely financially responsible, but it paid off massively. So you really had that idea that, you know, you can never go wrong with having more tobacco, and, uh, and I'm sure as cigar smokers, that's something we, we can relate to a bit as well. Um, in 1981, so we're just a year after moving to their DR 12,000 square foot factory, uh, they started with the Hemingway series, and this is the first cigar of the story, really. I mean, we've talked for a long time, and this is the first cigar that we still recognize today. And you can still go and buy it. And to go on a tiny little sidebar here, again, 
the cigar industry had really rapidly changed throughout the 1900s. I mean, we go from the Cuban cigars in the beginning to the handmade stuff, you know, going towards automation. And another effect of the rapidly changing market uh, was that if you guys think back, you know, in the early 1900s, the Perfecto shape was by far the most prominent shape in, in the industry. I mean, if you look at old posters, you look at old cartoons, all that stuff from that era, the Perfecto cigars with the two tapered ends is always the stereotypical style cigar. But with the dawn of the machine making cigars uh, and a lot of the original cigar makers in the US and all that stuff, they've died off. So Parejo cigars, you know, the classic straight cigars were much easier to roll with machines, much easier to roll with learning rollers. So the highly artisanal Perfecto shape, which is a really difficult shape. I mean, it, it is really generally known as the toughest cigar shape to roll by hand. It was quickly forgotten. So in the late 1980s, when the Fuentes began their production in the DR, uh, not in the late 1980s, in the early 1980s, when they began their production in the DR, uh, producing these perfecto shaped cigars was really considered a lost art since those earlier Cuban times. In fact, apart from just a few torpedoes, there were basically no shaped or figurado cigars on the market whatsoever, uh, which is crazy to think now. Uh, Calito Fuente actually found some very old molds with a perfecto shape, and he began blending that medium-bodied series that became the Hemingway series. And he, he, he both wanted that old classic look, but he also found this a way to kind of differentiate himself on the market because it was so unusual, right? Uh, and that short story that he blended at the time, that's still a very popular cigar on the, today's market. That Hemingway short story, it's still legendary today, but back then it became an instant hit immediately one of their best-selling cigars uh, and at the time the cigar connoisseur magazine that's not one we recognize today but these are the days before cigar aficionado uh, that magazine actually wrote about the Hemingway series in 1984 uh, and this kind of put them more on a global map because they hadn't really been that big before um, so yeah a lot there yeah. they've got some stuff to, to to move on from Exactly. And as you touched on lightly there, uh, Carlito Fuente, he loved all the history of cigars and uh, had learned so much from his late grandfather, Arturo Fuente, and then obviously his father, Carlos Sr., after him. Uh, so thus, he despised the, the dead cigar market of the 70s and 80s uh, that consisted of pretty much all the same cigars leading to the radical shape of the Hemingway series. Um but he also found the packaging to be very monotone and dull. Uh, so what he really saw here was that all the bands were of just two colors and the packaging was very plain. Carlito said, and I quote, I want to bring back the old things, not only the shapes and the romance, the things that were not popular anymore, but also the art and the history. So for Carlito, it wasn't only about making these great cigars but he wanted to bring back this history and art that he that he had learned from his grandfather and father uh, so he created more colorful and artistic bands and boxes inspired from the heyday of cigars and looking back at this cigar today carlito holds the hemingway line very dear to his heart since it did serve as this revolutionary cigar that paved the way for other brands to follow suit and bring back the art to this industry that mm. had been lost for decades Mm. Um, yeah, so at this point in time, mid-80s, the Dominican Republic factories were flourishing and the Fuente family all living there, making the Ibor City location less suitable for, for their operations, really. 
Uh, but with the immense history and emotion tied to Bor City, you, you know, they've had their entire life there, three generations. Mm. Uh, the, factory, the factory was kept open, but solely as a distribution facility, which ended the era of handmade Fuente cigars in Tampa. Uh, however, Carlos Sr. didn't want to abandon this Tampa-made brand, uh, Moya, which we mentioned earlier. Um, so what he did was he uh, partnered up with the Newman family and formed the the affiliate known as Fanco, uh, yeah, the Fuente and Newman Cigar mm-hmm. Company, yeah, uh, which turned out to be a very good partnership, actually, for both parts. Uh, with Newman making cigars in Tampa for Fuente and Fuente returning hand-rolled cigars for Newman, uh, which they produced in the Dominican Republic for Newman's American market, mm-hmm. since it was very difficult for uh, to get these hand-rolled cigars in the U.S. Newman wanted or to, to make them in the U.S. because mm. of the high labor costs. Newman wanted a hand-rolled cigar that they could sell there. And uh, so, yeah, this partnership was born, really. Mm, perfect. Yeah, so uh, things were going well for the Fuentes in the DR. Uh, they'd settled in very nicely. Their business was establishing itself. They were becoming a little more worldwide, and their cigars were much more loved than before. Uh, they'd been there for quite a while now uh, without anything burning down or anything. Uh, so, you know, what, what does the Fuente family do in a situation like this? Everything is going well. Do they get complacent? Of course not. <laughs> Quite the opposite <laughs> uh, in this story. Uh, an unnamed tobacconist uh, from Paris, France, uh, apparently this famous worldwide tobacconist, uh, was visiting the Fuente production in the DR. Uh, and this was in 1988. And he, or 86, I believe, 86 or 88, uh, he was visiting there. Uh, and he made a snide remark. He, he actually said uh, in quotes here, you don't produce a cigar, you assemble a cigar. And that might not sound that crazy uh, from the outside, uh, but this really, I mean, this shook Carlito Fuente to the core. And what he means here really is the comment is on the fact that the Fuentes, they they were still, you have to remember, they were just importing tobacco at this time. So they were importing a bunch of tobacco from different countries. That's what they'd done all the time, right? Before the, way back in the day, they'd imported Cuban tobacco to the U.S., and they've been doing this every time they've moved to different places. So they were only really a factory. So they were importing tobacco. And then, like he said, he, they weren't producing the cigar. They were assembling the cigar. So they were just rolling it. Uh, and that really, you know, that 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 shook him to his core, Carlito Fuente. Uh, so this tobacconist, he, he held that old opinion that a puro, a, a, you know, a classic cigar where all the tobacco is grown from the same terror and country was really superior, especially if it's made by the producer itself. And although the Fuentes didn't share, you know, that opinion completely, uh, this did give Calito Fuente an itch that he just had to scratch. So for a very long time before this, just to give some background, the opinion of the Dominican Republic was that it was almost perfect for cigar tobacco production. But that almost is really important because the terroir was long deemed unsuitable for growing high-quality wrapper tobacco. And this might be something that people have heard before. Uh, I mean, sure, budget sticks were made at the time. They were used, and they used some shabby-looking wrapper leaves. You could obviously, you could grow tobacco wrappers in the DR, but nothing truly premium had ever come out of the DR as a true puro. 
It was often said that the soil in Cuba was blessed in a way that the soil in the DR wasn't. And Carlitos Fuentes' reaction to this was that, well, soil doesn't grow tobacco, human beings grow tobacco. Uh, so now that they have sufficient resources to expand and experiment and fueled by that, you know, itch that he wanted to disprove the impossible, Carlito set out on a quest. He would not rest until he could prove everyone wrong and make a world-class Dominican Puro. Right, lad? So, yeah, other companies had tried for years uh, to make a Dominican Puro, but reportedly lost millions in the process. But obviously, the recurring theme here that we keep coming back to is that the Fuentes are fighters and never quitters. So it was a slow process for the first few years, and the first harvests were complete failures. But like his father and grandfather before him, Carlito wouldn't give up. And the facilities here weren't up to scratch for this project either. Um, I mean, they had been growing, they had been mostly a factory before and less of a farm before the end of the 80s. Uh, so this remark that they were only assemblers of cigars inspired the family to expand their production of tobacco as a whole as well. So Carlito once tried to get out to the fields with his father in a truck one rainy day. They had to drive through the mud and the truck got so stuck that they needed a John Deere to pull it out. And Carlos Sr. told Carlito to build roads or he wouldn't come back at all. As, as he said, he was a cigar maker and not a farmer. So build roads he did to satisfy his father and curing barns and gazebos and all kinds of buildings and amenities to make what today is called Chateau de la Fuente, a cigar wonder. Yeah, so back to this quote, uh, unquote, impossible Dominican Puro uh, that really fueled this expansion. Uh, it had been kept behind closed doors uh, for the years it took to really get the project going, like Ruben mentioned. It was a slow burn. It, the first few harvests were a fail. But in 1992, they finally felt they'd overcome the challenges of growing that wrapper enough. They could finally reveal the project to the world. Uh, originally, as kind of a joke, it was called the Project X from Planet Nine. Uh, I don't really know where, where, the, <laughs> where that comes from, but that's what they called it as a goof. Uh, then in 1992, uh, like I said, they finally revealed the project. But 1992 was actually a very significant year in another way for the cigar industry. Uh, because Cigar Aficionado was actually born that year. And uh, that was actually a huge part in creating, creating that legendary and absolutely massive cigar boom of the 1990s. So that is actually perfect timing for the Fuentes. They're making this crazy cigar, this huge project, and right at the time. But I mean, it is really important to highlight how insane the 1990s were. The cigar boom was unlike anything we've ever seen before. So in November 1995... Now bearing the name Fuente Fuente Opus X that we all know today, the cigars were finally actually released. And they were only released to the eastern part of the United States. And, you know, in many ways, this actually goes back to the roots of the company, uh, because that, that's actually the part of the country where Carlos Sr. first expanded outside of Tampa. Remember, he went to Miami and Manhattan and the eastern part of the U.S., uh, the cigar, it sold out immediately. Uh, it was only limited to a couple per customer. And this is the first time the cigars hit the market. So that's actually a huge feat that it's sold out immediately. Uh, and, you know, this in incredibly has actually continued until today. And that's that's pretty cool to think of that Opus X is still famously impossible to get a hold of. And it's still often limited to just a few per customer when the shops finally, finally get some. Uh, 
Uh, and then connecting with this whole Opus story here is another interesting tidbit from this era is that in 1996, uh, a winery called the Opus One Winery, uh, which was a venture between Robert Mondavi Corporation and Baron Philippe de Rothschild SA, for all you wine nerds out there might say something, uh, they sued Fuente for using the word Opus in their cigars. Uh, so it actually took two years and it cost them millions uh, of dollars. Both sides cost millions of dollars. Uh, but Fuente actually finally won in July of 1998. And this is something they bring up a lot. Uh, they really had, were full of pride of this because they, they liken this as sort of David uh, and Goliath-style uh, victory. Uh, but we've mentioned this several times now, lad. Let's go back to it here for you. Uh, the 90s was a crazy time, and it was a huge, huge cigar boom, right? Yes, absolutely. You didn't undersell that at all. The 90s, we know, was... Like you said, the crazy cigar boom. So even extremely unsuccessful brands that had struggled to barely sell anything before could all of a sudden not even meet demand. That is how crazy this mm-hmm. this demand really went. And um, yeah, since cigar tobacco takes years from planting it until it was ready, uh, there simply wasn't enough tobacco available immediately to meet the demand. So due to this, the Fuentes, unfortunately, became a target in the industry. Companies rushed to the Dominican Republic and brought, bought up a lot of stock, which hurt the established cigar makers, like the Fuentes. They also went after the rollers, another commodity that takes years to get ready through training. So what they did was they offered Fuentes rollers, masters of the art at this point, making the beautiful Hemingway Perfectos. They offered them tons of money to switch allegiances. And... Fuente lost over 500, 500 rollers in a year during this crazy 90s. So that, yeah, that obviously is something that's going to affect the business. And Carlito Fuente, he had to create a completely new rollers program called Operation Blank Slate, which would protect them from this poaching. Uh, another innovative idea by the Fuente family here to, to secure the, the company in this market. Uh, so the Fuentes sought out workers who hadn't made cigars before, uh, interestingly enough. So they were trained to make cigars much slower and carefully in a style known as entubado, uh, in which the roller creates a tube with each leaf. Uh, so this is slower than the standard Dominican methods of cigar production, where tobacco leaves are made into S-shapes, giving the bunch a look similar to an accordion. Um, and Fuente wanted the rollers to make beautiful cigars, cigars, but to make them slowly. And this was because since they had this poaching, if anyone tried to steal them away again, they wouldn't be able to work in the in the faster style, yeah, high tempo factories that just really wanted to sell as much as possible and not focus on the quality as much. We lost everything after the embargo. We lost everything to fires. We lost things in revolution, and we lost it everything. So, but you know what? We haven't lost our integrity. When we were challenged. We felt our principles and our integrities were challenged. It didn't matter whether we won or lost. What really mattered is that how we walked out of with our heads up. I couldn't accept it. There's no way I would accept it. And I told my son, even though if we lose everything, it's whatever it takes. I mean, I I remember I was born without nothing. I start again without nothing. And I never got scared about that. Yeah, spot on. What a crazy era. Uh, yeah. <laughs> insane that they Not only approach. stealing commodities, but stealing like yeah people yeah it's nuts to think back to to the 90s there 
but continuing on in the 90s, uh, obviously they were now fighting with a lot more um, more brands. There were so many brands around, uh, and the Fuentes, they were still doing their philosophy, though, slow and careful, quality over quantity. Uh, and in January 1996, it started to pay off. Uh, a tasting in Cigar Insider, uh, another magazine we still have today, they gave uh, Fuente four prestigious scores in the 90s, so obviously very good. Uh, that included one uh, score of 94 points uh, for the Perfection Number no. 2, which is one of those uh, opuses, uh, which was a pyramid. And these successes, the scoring, obviously, I mean, that always helps a company, uh, along with the fact that the 90s was such an incredible time for cigars in terms of demand, really meant that the camp, uh, company absolutely expanded. I mean, obviously, there were tough parts, the poaching and all that stuff, but it, it really still exploded. Uh, so in 1997, they uh, this was really when the cigar boom uh, peaked here, because uh, Fuente produced a whopping 40 million cigars in that year. Uh, which is a huge leap from the thousands they made just a few decades prior. I mean, can you think back to when they made like a thousand cigars a year in the house and then just a couple decades late, later, 40 million? Yeah, uh, but now a lot. We reach one of these moments yet again where the Fuente family are on top of the world and everything seems perfect. They're producing more cigars than ever. They're getting higher ratings than ever. So what happens on the 15th of September, 1998? It's a name we won't soon forget. Hurricane George. His threats of intense winds and driving rain forced over a million of us to seek higher ground. One of the biggest evacuations ever to take place. And as many of us come home feeling somewhat fortunate, let's never forget the power of nature. Yeah, this is an extremely sad time as well because the powerful and long-lived Category 4 hurricane called George's rages through the Caribbean. It was extremely costly and fatal, killing 604 total people. Worst of all, though, was the island of Hispaniola, where the Dominican Republic is located. So 380 of the fatalities were actually in the Dominican Republic alone. And of course, this would hurt the Fuente family greatly. It may seem sound minor in the grand scheme of things now, as they didn't lose any lives, thank God. But 17 of their 19 curing barns were torn apart and they lost huge amounts of tobacco at the Chateau. And at the Chateau de la Fuente, uh, there stands eight majestic palm trees. Not only are they beautifully beautiful visually, but even more so symbolically, because in the ramifications of Hurricane George, over 200 palm trees were wiped out, only for these eight to remain standing, firmly and unwavering, much like the Fuente family did then, and like they have, and like they have, whenever faced with setbacks throughout the history, so these surviving palm trees stood in the middle of the newly sowed tobacco fields, but Carlito refused to cut them down as a symbol for the history of the Fuente family, that have had to face many knockdowns and pick themselves up after every single one to get where they are today, and in a time like the '90s, where the global cigar supply already couldn't keep up with the demand. This was devastating, obviously, especially for their widely successful Opus line that had to be put on hold as they had to rebuild. So again, the Fuente stayed strong and built again, and something positive came from it. As they didn't have enough wrapper to make more Opus X cigars, they used the binders and fillers and wrapped it in a new Connecticut broadleaf. 
which led to the new line, the Añejo, a lovely line of cigars that we sampled pretty recently, actually. Right, Lan? Yeah, yeah, lovely cigars mm-hmm. uh, with a darker broadleaf. Uh, so something nice came out of the, the dark moments. Uh, and like Ruben said, they rebuilt. And as always, they're faced with adversity, but their success continues uh, as they fight through that adversity. Uh, Carlito Fuente, through his Opus line, he really showcased a new taste of powerful and full-bodied cigars. You have to also remember at this time, before the cigar boom of the 90s, the popular cigars at the time, they were really light. It's the kind of Macanudo Connecticut-style cigar that's, that, that was dominating the market before. Uh, so, it, you know, the Opus was kind of groundbreaking, not only in the fact that he created a Dominican Puro that was a success, but it was actually much heavier than a lot of other cigars on the market, and that also kind of raised eyebrows. And that helped to develop a changing taste at the market at the time. And these heavier, more powerful cigars that Carlito Fuente personally really enjoyed were becoming much more popular. And Fuente continued along these lines, as in 1999, they created the heavy Ashton Virgin Sungrown, or or the VSG as it's known. Uh, And that's a highly rated cigar, and still to this day, it's legendary. Uh, A lot of people listening here has probably tried that cigar. and Carlos Sr. at this time, he was given a lot of credit himself, but he's time and time again refuted that. And he's, he's really been strong, uh, strongly wanting to give all the credit from all the blends in the last you know decades here to his son, Calito Fuente, because he's really who took over this aspect uh, after the bl- successes of Opus. Um, Carlos Sr. has really, I mean, he, that's a point of pride for him that Carlito is such a master of blending. And he says that over and over again. Uh, and yeah, tons of lines come up here. The Don Carlos line, which Carlito actually blended for in honor of his own father, Don Carlos himself, uh, and that used their prized Cameroon wrappers as well. Uh, and you know, other things like the Rosado Sun Grown followed suit. And these are all smash hit cigars, and we still have them on the market today. And that kind of says a lot. Uh, so in 2001, uh, we're already in the 2000s here, uh, but it's just success after success after that uh, horrific hurricane. We're finally at a point where they've really built something here. They feel like they, they're in the DR to stay at this point. They, they, they've settled down and this is their place where they're going to be. And they feel like now they can start to give back to the community. So along with the Newmans, who they already had partnered with before, they created this new foundation called the Cigar Family Charitable Foundation. Uh, and this foundation would help to the help the less fortunate in the DR and this especially focused on that area uh, of people that lived close to the Chateau de la Fuente so that was a very underdeveloped part it's kind of in the middle of nowhere uh, in between Santiago and Santo Domingo it's yeah kind of in the middle of nowhere so they they really helped uh, put some infrastructure there they built clean water stations in the area they built a school and then they even expanded that into a high school so you know they did massive things for the community uh, and their foundation has just continued to grow. It's now UN recognized, which is a point of pride for them as well. It still helps countless of lives to this day. And yeah, it's just something that we can really look up to. So cigar wise, though, a lot. How are they doing? Yeah. So obviously they've done great things for the community. But cigar wise, the successes certainly continue to come. Mm-hmm. In 2005, the Fuente Fuente Opus X Double Corona was named Cigar Aficionado's Cigar of the Year. Huge. Which, a huge feat. And in 2010, the XXX Bellicoso was the number three cigar of the year. So they were making 
30 million cigars a year in 2010, which sounds like a step back from the 90s, but in actuality is a huge number in this day and age. Because remember, we talked about that boom in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, after that, the yeah, cigar demand has decreased a bit. Yeah. So 30 million a year, so much. Yeah. Uh, and obviously these accolades give the brand further boost as they continue to expand the lines they make. They add more Opus cigars too, and some of them have really, really cool stories. So if you want to kick them off here with one. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we mentioned the original Opus. That was obviously with the goal of the uh, original Dominican Puro. But uh, the Opus that's often regarded as the easiest to find is called the Lost City. Some of you guys may, may recognize that name. Uh, and this has a pretty funny story. as the famous Cuban-American actor Andy Garcia. Uh, he actually contacted Carlos Sr. in 2004. Uh, and they were filming his movie called The Lost City, and they needed filming locations. They wanted to film in tobacco fields. And what better place to film than at the Chateau de la Fuente? But uh, maybe Andy Garcia wasn't a huge cigar uh, savant at the time uh, because he wanted to film in July of 2004. And for those that don't know, that's um, majorly the off-season, so-called, in in the DR. So all the crops had already been uh, harvested. But the Fuentes still wanted to help out, uh, very kind people. So to provide the backdrop that they needed for the movie, they planted 15 acres of tobacco during the so-called off-season. And originally, I think they they just did this as a kind gesture. You know, it was a nice thing to do. But uh, this tobacco didn't actually go to waste. Uh, They still harvested it and they used it. And finally, they released the Lost City Opus Edition. Uh, which was released in 2009, became a huge success, still available to this day. I, I still believe they plant the tobacco in the off-season, and it's still done in the same way. And after that, we have the Angel's Share, and this cigar has an equally crazy, but probably a little sadder story. Uh, if you hadn't noticed already, and I'm sure we've said that many times here, but rebuilding is just <laughs> such a massive theme in this Fuente story. And like, like I said earlier, fires are sadly that too. In 2011, near the company's main office in the city of Santiago, in a place called Villa Gonzalez, a huge fire broke out again. Another fire. And this time, two large warehouses are the casualties here. Uh, and these two large warehouses burned down completely and a massive inventory of tobacco with irreplaceable aged stock burned completely to the ground. Uh, And the Fuentes described this as the angels were smoking the tobacco that burned into the sky. Uh, And this was right before their 100-year centennial uh, anniversary, so that's even more of a gut punch. Uh, But Mm -hmm. this inspired them to launch a new line of Opus. They were going to plan to launch a new line of cigars for the 100 years, but they lost a lot of that tobacco. So instead, they make a new Opus called the Opus X Angels Share, obviously referring to the the burnt tobacco. Uh, And a quote here from uh, Carlos Sr. here, that we lost so much tobacco, he says. All the money in the world could not replace it. And you can't wait another 30, 40 years for that tobacco. The angels smoked it all. And it happened at the dawn of our 100th anniversary. But I said, this is not going to take me down. Things happen for a reason. And that really highlights sort of his mentality. Uh, so, you know, do they do they give up here, lad? Again, <laughs> do they give up? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. You know the Fuentes by now. And of course the Fuentes bounce back from this as well. And the Angel's share was obviously an enormous success. I mean, part, what a story. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, their success was so inspira- inspirational that Cigar Aficionado actually put Carlos Sr. and Carlita Fuente on the cover in 2012. And this was the first, this was such a huge thing because this was the first time ever that a manufacturer was mm. on the cover since the pages start 20 years mm. ago, 24 years before that. And, um, well, yeah, all of this leads up to their big 100-year celebration, which happened in that classic Charles the Great factory in Ybor City. The factory Carlos Sr. always dreamed of owning. There, they celebrated the company and the lives of those that built it, especially Arturo Fuente himself. Carlos Sr. said during his speech, We don't hurry things. We just do things the way they are supposed to be done. And I believe this is... this quote really summarizes as well mm. uh, everything that the Fuente family has done because uh, when they had the the like just going back now when they had the decision of either making only machine made cigars and scrapping the hand rolled when that was the most difficult mm-hmm. thing that wasn't at all what they wanted to do they they prevailed and uh, they stuck to what they wanted and they prevailed so that is mm-hmm. yeah, yeah some integrity right there spot on yeah they never rush the hands of times and uh, there i think in a way the story kind of reaches a natural ending Uh, of course 2012 isn't modern day uh, but that sort of ties it together some things certainly have happened since then Uh, carlos senior tragically passed away in 2016 Uh, this time uh, he passed at the age of 81 Uh, arturo fuente the original passed at 85 uh, many decades before uh, and I, he was involved in the company until his final days obviously it was always family run uh, he famously did all the bookkeeping for the entire company up until 2005 even uh, with the help of his daughter and this really highlights how much of a family operation this was I mean they were making tens of millions of cigars at that time and he was still just running mm-hmm. the books which is immense and now Carlito Fuente Fuente the third generation runs the company uh, and his son, Carlos III, and his daughter, Liana Fuente, are next in line. So there are still generations to come. And their vision of expansion has also continued. So in 2018, they broke ground to make a new 69,000 square foot factory in the Santiago Free Zone, which will be able to take them even further. In the same year, Carlito proclaimed, Carlito's back, referring to the Fuente family's return to Nicaragua for the first time since 1979. With a new factory called Gran Fabrica de Tabacas La Bella y La Bastia is being built there, which all lead to new exciting opportunities. So there you have it. Strength, fighting spirit and desire really highlight the themes of the story of the Fuente family. Their Turo Fuente company has been described in a good way, where they have the production of a huge company, but the mentality of a small boutique brand. I think that sums them up pretty well. They've always wanted to make the best cigars, not the most, quality over quantity, always with the family. And so it has been, and so it will continue to be. Because as we know, it takes a lot to knock down a Fuente.